Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Research pertaining to optimal management for the upper extremity pales in comparison to what we have for the lower extremity, which is why we brought on Dr. Nicola Phillips to join us this week on JOSPT Insights. Nikki is an internationally registered sports physiotherapy specialist and a professor at Cardiff University. She has worked extensively with both the Welsh and British teams at Olympic Games and Commonwealth Games. She was chef de mission for Team Wales in Gold Coast 2018, head of Team GB Preparation Camp in Tokyo Summer 2021, and is chef de mission for Team Wales at Birmingham 2022 Commonwealth Games. Her academic role includes leading an MSc in sport and exercise physiotherapy, as well as research into rehabilitation following sports injury. Nikki was previously president of the International Federation of Sports Physical Therapy. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I am Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at True Sports Physical Therapy in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Phillips, thank you so much for for taking the time to come on JOSPT Insights. Uh, Chelsea and I have been looking forward to this episode for a long time, so we're we're excited to get started. My pleasure. I'm excited to have a chat today. So we'd love to get your vast sports physio expertise on optimal loading for the upper extremity. So if we use an example of something like a labral injury, a rotator cuff injury, And if we fast forward, like kind of through the acute phase, you have an incredible paper that we want to ask specifically about. In particular, uh, I wanted to look at the 2015 paper, Optimal Loading, Key Variables and Mechanisms. It was published in BJSM in 2015. I love this article for a number of reasons, specifically because it looked at the reasoning why the physiological underpinnings behind a lot of what we do. And you noted that the evidence suggests that tissues have a threshold level of mechanical strain that if exceeded facilitates improvements in adaptations such as bone density, strength, collagen uh, reorganization, muscle tendon unit stiffness. And so essentially load heavy and preferably quick, but beyond just load, you also talked about facilitating structural and neural adaptations. If we relearn a task within a slightly different context. So would you mind talking a little bit more about that and how it relates to, to upper extremity rehab? Just to come back to that that optimal loading paper first. We looked at various tissues and we looked at the traditional things of how you would apply load to tissue. And Phil Glasgow and Chris Bleakley were the two other authors with that. We we often sit around and chew the fat and think, well, how does this work clinically? And, you know, when you think about it, when we do functional rehabilitation, what we're actually doing is loading the neural system, whether that's peripheral or central. And so how do we go about structuring the loading that we do? How do we change the way we prescribe a functional exercise that might maximize what the benefits of really how we learn and really put that into a better environment to allow us to learn better? And so that's that's where that came from. And there are a number of theories around motor control, but what we were looking at there was if if we look at that Bayesian theory model, it's, it's, it's a way of quantifying how we learn and how the central nervous system learns to be able to predict the likely movement need or the outcome of a movement based on what is happening now. You know, we live in a constantly changing environment with varying degrees of predictability of a movement. 
and we all know as well that if, if a movement is too cognitive and we're thinking too much about it, it takes us too long to react. So if we take it into an upper limb example, a tennis player would never get to the ball for a successful outcome if they waited to see which direction the ball was coming. They predict that from the body position of their opponent. But a novice is more likely to get that wrong because they're not as good at predicting it. The more times we practice, and we practice and get it wrong as well as get it right so that we're constantly learning each time we do that, and we, we store that information, we become more accurate at how we predict. And that, that's done through a variety of ways. And the best way, when you look at the sports science and the motor control type literature, is to do that through implicit learning, which is to keep trying movements and working it out yourself to see, you know, have I got it right or have I got it wrong? And we know that that helps with retention of tasks and transfer of tasks to other skills. Where we have difficulty when we're trying to do an optimal loading for somebody with an injury is that person will have learned that skill with a fairly constant internal environment. That changes in the presence of injury or developing injury. So if you took a tennis player with a, a developing rotator cuff problem, suddenly pain comes into that sensory information that comes in, maybe a lack of range, a lack of strength. All of a sudden, that predictability gets less accurate again. When we're trying to rehab that, we might be trying to rehab after a time off injury. So they might not be as fast getting to the ball. They might not be as strong as they were. They might not be as fit. So they get fatigued quicker. So that sensory information changes again. So it becomes really important when we're prescribing exercises that have that motor learning element is that we need to allow for that. Even though our focus might be on developing tensile load to get a tendon change or, or um, a magnitude of a load to change muscle adaptation, we also need to remember that they're doing a movement and every time they do a movement and their strength changes or maybe their whole flow of the movement changes because you've been doing some core control to try and help improve a movement pattern to reduce the impingement problems in a rotator cuff injury, that will change the constraints that they have to get to a ball in time. So how they then predict how they're going to move. So I think we have to think about the neural things alongside all the other bits. Would you consider implementing those things? I guess you're saying anytime it changes, you're thinking about it. So you're thinking about it throughout the rehab or is it mostly at the end? Absolutely. Right through the rehab. So from when you're doing really low level, easy exercises, as the healing process is happening, the tissue is changing. So you actually have to keep changing that quite frequently. And I think the importance of bringing in that ability to make a decision, even if it's only about pointing to a ball, just in four-point kneeling, moving their hand to a target, how you actually change that and make them respond to a decision and an instruction, and you change the time constraints available, you change the predictability, and so you challenge the nervous system to do that in a really low-key exercise. And if you keep introducing that all the time, you'll improve those things. So by the time you get to those high-level, late-stage return to sport, they're used to doing that. 
Do you try to meld all of this together into certain interventions that kind of hit everything all at once? Or do you find it easier to splice it up, so to speak, and have some interventions that are more oriented towards your typical muscle tendon loading and some other interventions that are less optimized for strength and, and sheer loading and, and more so oriented towards that, that motor learning aspect? It's a constant conundrum. Because when you think, once you start to get to a functional movement, you, you can't take anything in isolation. You can't, you can't load a tendon without loading the muscle because it's the muscle that contracts that loads the tendon, as an example. So, you know, we are, we are a whole body. But what I tend to do is I might prioritize either in a stage of rehabilitation or where the patient is or perhaps a block of treatment that I'm doing. And then if you're prioritizing a specific tissue, how you load it will be geared towards that. So for instance, if I wanted to put a tensile load on a tendon or I wanted to create a strengthening stimulus and my priority was strength, then I'm going to reduce the neuromuscular challenge there because that will be the self-limiting factor. And then I might not get the adaptation I need in the muscle because I can't put enough load on the muscle because the limiting constraint factor is their ability to control that movement in the first place. And then at some point you have to put them both together, obviously. That's that's super helpful because to me, when I'm trying to put together programming, it's like, okay, what is the point of this exercise? Some of the point, some of the exercises, the, the priority is I'm just trying to put some load through the rotator cuff tendons. And then other ones are, hey, I'm trying to work more on coordination or that neuromuscular coordination. So that And those things might still happen in a single session. Absolutely. So there might be a series of exercises that I would say want to load the rotator cuff. Well, then I take the other challenges out of the way. If they haven't really got good core control yet, or you still need scapulothoracic dynamic control, then trying to load the rotator cuff in an exercise that brings all of those in, they're just not going to do that, and then you're going to fail. Whereas if you if you limit and you make that exercise easier to really target the tissues you're doing, and then in another exercise where you can unload the rotator cuff but work on the scapula or work on the trunk, for instance. Are there different phases of rehab where you find yourself prioritizing those things more so? I, I know you said you, you can do it in a specific session which makes sense, right? You give them an exercise, right, their trunk can't control like the plank and whatever exercise you gave them. So you have to back that down and kind of work through that like in the session. But in throughout the rehab process, is there are there specific phases of that process that you find yourself prioritizing um, one more than the other? If you think of the relatively early stages of both those examples you gave, whether it was a big traumatic injury that might be a dislocation or a labral tear, or whether it's a more chronic overuse type one, which might be, say, a, a rotator cuff tendinopathy. Either way, in the earlier stages, you are relatively unloading the tissues to allow time to heal. You're not taking load away completely, but you are trying to unload it. Now, rather than just them not doing anything, you can use the time to do the other work that would be within the kinetic chain. So the core, maybe some scapulothoracic things, unloading the actual tissues you're trying to protect. That then allows healing. You can't do a load of strengthening work when the tissue is still painful, for instance, because that will just switch the muscle off. So you're, you're, you're not going to gain anywhere. So there is a time element of where you'd prioritize different things. And it's about thinking of the, the tissue pathology and the healing time to say, right, where is this tissue now? How much can I push it? And if there's still an element of protection, well, you work on some of the other things. Then when you know the tissue is resilient enough, you can start to push 
the magnitude of the load, for instance, to, to, to gain muscle strength or, or put a, more of a tensile load on. Are there examples of kind of exercises that are key to implement in these um, like later phases, whether it's strengthening or, or plyometrics or anything like sport specific, if we're trying to get back to throwing or something like that, let's take like an overhead athlete, just because then that's going to be, that, go, that goes with our labral tear pretty well. Any key exercises to implement? I would say with an overhead athlete that might have impingement problems, rotator cuff, tendinopathy, whatever you want to call it. I'm going to be working on their lower limb and their trunk as much as their shoulder. And I, I think I can't emphasize that enough. And I don't want to just focus on the shoulder there because usually a big proponent of why they've had the problem in the first place is partly there may be some deficiencies in the kinetic train somewhere else, or it could be a pure overload in that they've increased their, their frequency or their, the, you know, the intensity of their training, they might have gone up a level. And so it's it's a pure load management that needs to be reduced. If it's not that, you're usually trying to improve the movement and you do that through other strength. And so I would I like those exercises that start to incorporate the lower limb and trunk in with a diagonal movement pattern for the arm. And this is only sound, and I'm afraid I can't talk without moving my arms. Um, but if you think <laughs> of a, a typical example, you might be in a, a lunge or a split squat position, and you might have an overhead cable or a, a band, whatever you have available in your gym. And you can even just start statically. So you, you're in a split squat position. The arm that's overhead is opposite to the arm that's in front in the squat, if you think of it. And you're just trying to initiate against maybe a band or a cable and hold that good position. Then you might start taking that into a down diagonal pattern. But you've already got the legs in a position that you're trying to make that practical. Okay, you might might first of all start them sitting down to get that movement pattern to take that neuromuscular challenge away. But as we start to get more functional, you're taking them into that position. It's still pretty static and it's easy for them to hold. You're not trying to move them quickly into movement pattern. But the way you would then progress that is that you would start them standing instead of already in that position. And then you say, right, now lunge and take that diagonal pattern as you do that, so you're combining the two movements. Then you start to add time constraint challenge by maybe having three different colored cones in front of you. And you say, right, go to cone one, cone two, cone three. And they don't know where they're going to take their leg and so what angle the truck's gonna be until I shout the number. But they're still trying to produce that good quality movement from their arm, but now their trunk and their lower limb is in a slightly different position. It's a still very controlled exercise. You're still not taking them into that high speed movement pattern that they're going to do for their sport, but you're starting to make them make a decision, predict what they need to be able to do, and to start putting those building blocks together that you've been working on separately, maybe in the earlier stages. You know, once they they get the foundational aspect of that movement, you can start adding in the the changes in rate, the changes in direction, kind of forcing that movement prediction error to facilitate continued neuromuscular learning as you yes. change the environment and the context around them. Yes. To do that successfully, you need the strength. So you have to have worked on the strength to achieve that position in the first place. And you also need the strength endurance, which comes back to that knowledge of strength and conditioning again, is that it's one thing to get, you know, 
a decent strength after five attempts. Um, but what you like after 30 attempts, you know, are you still able to maintain that movement pattern? And then we need to start thinking of taking that into even longer. So if you think of the average swimmer is going to do something like 16,000 overhead movement things in a day. So, you know, are we, when we do our six or seven attempts and go, oh, that's good, we're nowhere near what they need to be able to do for that length of time. So at some point, we have to consider the volume of, of what we're doing. We're not going to get to that number in a day, but it's it's to make them better prepared for when they go back into that environment. So it's, it seems like just as, as we progress through an upper extremity rehab, knowing how to load is knowing what building blocks you need to work on. So when to work, when to prioritize the strength one, when to prioritize the range of motion one. And then as you progress, you can add more building blocks into the interventions that you're addressing. And the building blocks can kind of reflect what the needs for their sport are, right? So that swimming is going to need a lot, more, a ton more volume um, than another sport who doesn't have to need that much more volume. Uh, where other sports are going to need a significantly more strength than than volume, or they're going to need more control, more of that predictability. They're having to like read a ball. Absolutely. And so the needs analysis for what they need to go back to is as important as looking at the tissue that you're actually dealing with. Even though, even in the earlier stages, you know, you're you're not you're nowhere near what they're doing, they're gonna need to do later. But you almost need that half in mind. So if you think of a a skill that we would consider a close skill. So there's more predictability to it. So a javelin thrower, discus thrower, somebody like that. They're doing lots of repetitive overhead movement activities, but they're not trying to predict what an opponent's going to do. They might have to change to the wind conditions, but it's something that they can pre-plan. So I'm not going to spend as much time doing lots of throwing and catching type activities for them because they don't need to catch a javelin. They need to throw it. You know, so oh gosh, please, please don't. don't try to catch a javelin. Yeah, exactly. So it, it sounds obvious, but it's it's where you again, it's where you prioritize. So it, it is important to get that needs analysis really early because it starts to build that picture of what you need to do with this person and what they need to be able to do right at the end. I love that phrase of a needs analysis, um, I, as opposed to like sports specificity or sport demands. I like that needs analysis. And I, I just have one, I think that for some clinicians that could be pretty overwhelming to think about like, oh my gosh, I need to think about from day one, what sport they're doing and what I'm needing to prioritize. And every session has to have a priority and I need to be on my toes and able to like, think about my building blocks every session at the very basics. What should people be considering when they're making sure that they're loading the best that they can? Okay. So first of all, you need to be thinking about the basic components that we've talked about. You know, we've got to get the range, we've got to get the strength, we've got to get rid of the pain, we've got to start being specific for the function. Then when we start to split that up, I think a good way to try and do it is to look at the person. So severity of the injury, type of tissue that's involved, maybe their age, so their, their likelihood of healing times and things like that as well, but also their age related to skill level. So a young youth athlete who hasn't quite learned their skill yet isn't going to be necessarily at expert level. So I'm starting at a different baseline point than I would be for a high level athlete who might have been you know, doing this for a lot of their career. 
Then I need to look at what are they going to do next? Are they a swimmer that's going to do those thousands of arm movements in a in a day? Are they a rugby player that's going to do maybe, you know, 40 or 50 contacts in an hour, whether it's landing on the floor or going into another player? What sort of position do they go into? What are the priorities in that sport? Does strength become more important than range? Whereas in a gymnast, you know, they need to be strong, but they also need their range in their shoulder to do a, a rings routine, as an example. So you're starting to build a picture of what is important for that sport. What is the load and the volume for that sport so that you can start to get them to that level? And then the final one is where you might put that level of threshold of risk assessment, because you're doing a risk assessment every time you you decide to progress and you're, you're balancing the, the pros and the cons and the risks of them getting re-injured versus the adaptation effect you want. And so that last one about where you place that threshold of risk will again depend on the context that you're working in. Is it somebody that is a 16-year-old that just wants to play sport to enjoy? Are they a professional athlete? Is it just before an Olympic Games? Is it going to be their last Olympic Games or is it perhaps their first one and they've got a long career ahead? That's going to change maybe where I push the boundaries a bit or don't push the boundaries. And that that has got that risk element. And there's a a really nice, it, it comes in the return to sport parameters that Ian Schreier has done a nice paper on that. But I think as a foundation, it helps you work through the whole of the rehab program. If you're trying to organize your thoughts in where you put some of these things and what you do when. Thanks for kind of letting us into kind of your your thought process of just considerations to take for the clinician. I think that could be really helpful. Yeah. So valuable. Yeah. So I'm really glad that you picked upper extremity because it is so much easier to talk about lower extremity. And I think when you look at the research out there, it's so now there's a growing amount in, in upper extremity, but the concentration has been on lower extremity, particularly when you look at tendon research. It is so much harder to measure that. And how do you actually take that? There's a lot of work being done on how you activate certain muscles around your shoulder and the importance of the kinetic chain. But the papers that talk about loading for rotator cuff, they don't always say how they load eccentrically. They don't do it as clearly. And there are huge differences in how people load, which means it's very hard to pull a consensus. So when you look at the systematic reviews out there, there is such a variety in what people have done. Whereas if you're looking at an Achilles tendon loading, it's much easier to see the patterns of what they do to load the tendon or a patella tendon. It's much harder with rotator cuff. So I think it's it's about going back to basics and looking at what's happening with the tissue. Add that into some of the lovely work that's been done, say, with people like Anne Coles and her research team about selecting the right exercises to target the right muscles. And then you can start building on that. But I would urge people to just think further afield than the shoulder because so much more has happened in the body by the time it gets to the shoulder. We need to get that right. Otherwise, the shoulder is just going to get injured again. In the key, that was incredible. Thank you so much. You are so, I mean, so much knowledge and experience and expertise. I'm so glad that we got to at least scratch the surface a little bit on it. It's been lovely chatting, actually. So I've really enjoyed it. 
for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Bye.